Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today I'm going to be interviewing Nina Constable. Now, she's a filmmaker who specialises in doing a little bit of everything. That's filming, editing, presenting, researching, and I'm going to be talking to her about what it takes to do absolutely everything and make it successful, as well as some of the projects that she's worked on. Before I do that, we're going to look at the news. Now, there's been a really bad sewage incident around the Olympic Park Wildlife Haven. Raw sewage was discharged for more than a thousand hours from a Thames water outflow pipe into the environmental wetland at the Olympic Park last year. The combined sewer outflow at Mulberry Court pumped untreated waste 91 times into the waterway that feeds into the River Lee. Now, The Guardian uh, did a report on this and it revealed that more than 1.5 million hours untreated sewage was discharged into English rivers last year via such points as this. The data obtained under the environmental information requests gives the most comprehensive picture of the scale of sewage discharge the Environment Agency allows water companies to carry out. And I think it's incredibly sad that the amount of just disgusting water ends up in our rivers, whether it's from roads, whether it's from, in this case, literally raw sewage is entering our rivers. It's quite a saddening thing to see, particularly when you get fish kills from it. Obviously, this degrades the water quality massively. And I think the, the most saddening thing is that this is all being allowed to happen. It's not really being stopped. This is quite acceptable in, in some circles. So I think that's really... Um, quite quite disheartening really so hopefully that'll that'll get revolved but that was a study you can read more about it online uh, via the guardian article but that really caught my eye because that was such a huge amount of raw sewage you know thinking about people who swim in rivers who a boat on rivers who go fishing and, and all that sort of thing and they're basically coming into contact with with raw sewage so such a shame on a happier note this is the interview that I did with Nina Constable. So she's an incredibly talented filmmaker. She's produced some wonderfully beautiful films. And this is our conversation about her career. Well, Nina, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries. Um, it, it might sound a little bit echoey on my end because I'm hiding away in my shed today. I'm meant to be kind of painting, but I've uh, scuttled away to do this podcast. So I apologise for that. But I think it sounds okay. It's all right on your end? Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds great. Okay, all right, lovely. Well, yeah, I'm going to talk about a few things with you, but I think we should start at the beginning. So where did your filmmaking career start? Because I would say that you're more of a storyteller than a traditional long lens camera. You're not the kind of person who's going to be in a hide for a month waiting for a squirrel or whatever. You're, you're more the whole story, which is fascinating. So, yeah, where, where did that start for you? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think it's actually something that I, I'm not a biologist. Um, I actually did an English degree and I think that's what has kind of why the storytelling aspect is something that I really love as, as well as the camera work. But um, I think it started for me, I was quite late in the game. I've always loved nature and always loved nature documentaries, but it was something that I hadn't, I think again, as I said, like not being a scientist, I don't think... I didn't think it was something that was kind of an option for me. But then after finishing my degree, I got really, really into photography while studying um, for my English degree. And everybody had gone onto digital. And so there was a dark room that you could just take the key out. Where, where did you study as well? Sorry to interrupt, but where did you study? Um, so I did English 
English at Reading University. Reading University, okay. First. Um, yes, English at Reading, and yes, yeah, so I got obsessed with photography while doing my English degree, but um, film photography, not digital. And then I finished, and if I'm totally honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I loved writing, I loved photography, and loved music. And it was, I then took a year out, and it was only during that year out that I kind of started to think about how I could, could kind of combine all of those things. And it was like, oh, film, film is kind of, it's all of those things kind of combined, but didn't feel like I had any experience, didn't really know what I was doing. But then I, so I applied for a master's at the University of Bristol, and that was a master's in documentary practice. And so you could choose whether you did radio, essay writing, film or photography and I decided to focus on film and that's kind of where it all started really we had there were only eight people on the course so it was really intensive in terms of how much time you had and the time with the lecturers and in the edit suites and the kit was really amazing because we were kind of an add-on to their main film and television masters but because we were kind of a small offshoot we could kind of get all of the kit that we wanted and so that was the, the first time that I really started making films and so I must have been I think 20, 21 so yeah quite quite late to the game but then when so doing my master's for the final kind of art thesis you had to produce a film and also write a critical essay on it and everyone else decided to do their um, their films in Bristol but I decided to go and do mine in Morocco and because of that I couldn't take a crew with me I had to do all of it on my own because we were on a very limited budget and that was the first time that I realised that one that it was an option to shoot and to create an entire film just on your own but also that I really loved working in that way that I really loved being the person that kind of develop the ideas and then I got to go meet the people and interview them and then in the edit is when I get really obsessive and I really love just kind of seeing the story that you've thought up coming together and it doesn't always come together as you'd planned but it's just amazing to kind of see yeah to see it all coming together as a as a film very long-winded answer to <laughs> <laughs> no no it's, it's all good to get it all in so do you find them because because you've not got that zoological background in terms of like a degree anyway that background do you find that gives you an outside perspective when you're filming i know you're obviously interested in nature and things like i find that i i, I, I sometimes get distracted like if i see something interesting and like oh i should, <laughs> should have recorded that rather than stare at it for 10 minutes <laughs> But like, so do you find there's a different perspective or, or does it not really make a difference? I definitely think there's a different perspective. I think a lot of what I do is communicating scientific ideas to people that aren't necessarily scientists. And I think so therefore actually not being a scientist or a trained scientist myself, if I understand it, then somebody else that's not a trained scientist will, hopefully, if I've communicated it well. And so I think that it was something that I used to really worry about and thought would hold me back and would mean that it, the kind of the natural history kind of wildlife filming world was something that I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be an option for me. But I think approaching it in a different way and also I just love learning and oh sorry, I need to turn <laughs> Off. I should I should have I should have mentioned that at the beginning actually yeah there's been a few a few of them we're just like has gone halfway through. There's my sister asking me about elderflower cordial. Well that's, um. <laughs> that's very that's very important if you need to take that don't worry. <laughs> but yeah I think 
it was something that, yeah, at the beginning I thought not being a biologist or a zoologist would kind of, yeah, it would be a hindrance, but actually I think it has been something that is one made me because of that it's almost like that imposter syndrome feeling like I don't belong has meant that I have spent so much time researching and for every script or film that I'm working on I spend a, a huge amount of time talking to people and reading but also I think it has meant that don't intrinsically just understand something I don't have that biological understanding so it, yeah. Well, well, it can be another language, can't it? Some of these guys who are really, you know, they're, they're just saying things and you're just like, what are you on about? It's, you know, <laughs> it's just, which is fantastic for them. But yeah, it can be a bit tricky for, for the average Joe to, to get it. That's so much part of it. I think all industries create their own language that makes them seem inaccessible. And to an outsider, you can just be like, that just sounds like gobbledygook. But actually, if you can translate it, you're like, oh, that's what that means. And it's almost like you need a key. And then as soon yeah. as you understand what those particular words mean, you realise that they're not these kind of huge concepts that are totally unable to understand, actually. You can translate them and understand them. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to, yeah, translate complicated ideas or stories and make them digestible for people to understand and hopefully care. Yeah, which is the key, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that you're, you're pretty much a one woman band in that you do all the editing, the filming, presenting sometimes and, and all that kind of stuff. So what, what's the key to doing that on your own? Because I guess you're quite well known for that, aren't you, for doing it, you know, being the whole package, you're the whole package for doing it all. So what's the key to, to doing everything? I think it's learn like workflow and scaling kit down and just really understanding what you can scale back without losing production quality because I think at the there have been times where I've kind of it sounds really silly but I think I've turned up with kind of my small camera and somebody looks and like oh are you going to do the filming on that and it kind of makes you feel like you should have a bigger camera and a shoulder rig and all this stuff and I beforehand I've kind of been like right I'm gonna buy, buy this and I'll look really professional and then you realize it just gets in the way and actually as much as it might make you look more professional it's not necessary for the way that I work and so I think it's been finding yeah finding the right kit that like the sound setup that I don't need a field recorder but it still captures broadcast quality sound and finding a camera that is you know I don't need a massive steady cam, but I can work on a monopod or you know I've just found kind of tricks that have meant that I don't have all this huge cumbersome gear but I can still capture things that are, you know, um, I've sold stuff to the BBC and things and they are kind of high quality images. So that's been a really huge part of it to kind of make sure that you kind of keep up and that, you know, it's good quality, but that I'm not lugging around, you know, 50 kilos of gear on my own. So that's a big part of it. But also it's been learning how much I can handle on my own as well because I'm definitely guilty of taking on too much and spreading myself way too thin and there's a point where I have to be like one person Nina you can't deliver 10 films this week that's not realistic yeah <laughs> <laughs> try um, yeah exactly but then so I think it's been building up a network of other filmmakers with skills that I don't have and kind of becoming part of the community and realizing that as much as you know doing it all on your own sometimes is good actually realizing where my skills don't lie, like working with you on your underwater 
camera work you know that's not something that I you know I'm not a skilled underwater camera operator and the kit's really expensive and it's a, a skill and so I think that's also a big part of it is realizing when you need to bring somebody else on board and that's that's a really amazing thing to do to kind of be a part of a community and learn from other people as well you know it's amazing what can you work and you getting into your kind of your dry suit and floating <laughs> in the river and getting all this cool footage so um i think that's part of it as well is also being honest about when you know bringing somebody else in will make the output better yeah yeah definitely i mean i i tend to do that with things like say drones so i don't have a drone license or anything so i've got friends who do that and it's amazing how something so simple, I think, or just a little bit of drone footage, it'll just lift lift the film up, or like you were saying with underwater, like you, you can bung a GoPro in or, or whatever, but having it slightly better, I mean, so I've just bought a housing for my GH5 now, so that sort of ramped up the quality of what I can get, and it makes such a difference, it really looks a lot better. So having that network of, of friends and professionals who you can work with is is really, really important. So yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. You've worked with some, some big organizations over the years. So WWF, the Wildlife Trust, the BBC. Are there any jobs that stand out to you? Is there one job that you've done you're like, wow, that was just incredible? I'm really bad at this because I, I love all of them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure there were no, I'm sure there were no terrible jobs, but, <laughs> or maybe there yeah. was, but don't, maybe don't mention that. But uh, <laughs> I think honestly, one, like one of my favorite projects to date and one of the uh, is the Beaver Project, filming on that for Cornwall Wildlife Trust, because they Cornwall Wildlife Trust were the first paid commission that I ever got. They gave me my first job down here, and it was a very very small commission, and I was very green. I was just starting out, and I felt yeah they trusted me to make these three kind of short films for them. But that has been a really really amazing working relationship that has kind of. I think I that was five years ago I got my first job with them and now to be working on you know kind of bigger projects with them but then because of that um commission that I got with them it was actually the first job I got with the BBC was sending them some of the beaver footage that I shot for Cornwall Wildlife Trust and so they kind of starting out with this kind of conservation organization has then led to broadcast credits and so that has kind of, and the project itself, just to see it going from strength to strength and Gillian Burke being based there for Spring Watch this year over at Woodland Valley Farm and Chris appearing in the final, the final episode as well. I think that is just a project that I will always be a part of it and that feels quite amazing and quite rare. I don't think that's a kind of, I think often you will work on a subject or a story and then you kind of move on to the next but I feel like this will be a story that I will be following even if I'm not paid uh, for the rest <laughs> of my life I'll be involved in that but I think also another really big one for me was um, a project that I did last year for WWF and the North Devon Biosphere called Journey to the Sea and I worked with a comms NGO called Mindfully Wired who developed the kind of the script concept and we worked together on it and that was a six-part series following the waterways from um, Dartmoor kind of all the way through Devon and out um, into kind of the seas around so surrounding Lundy Island and following it was six episodes and in each place we there was an individual who would be connected to that particular landscape but also featured the wildlife that kind of relied on that particular place being a healthy ecosystem and 
that ended up, I think, a couple of weeks ago now. That series then was kind of, there was an agreement that that now sits on Sky Nature On Demand, which... Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, so the whole series. And so that was just a really, um, it just, I just felt quite proud of that. So that was kind of a really standout, um, standout thing to happen to kind of have a whole series kind of sitting on a platform like that. Um, kind of, as I, I kind of mentioned before, you kind of get this feeling a bit of like imposter syndrome and that's kind of like, oh no, okay, cool. That, that's, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> it sort of uh, justifies what you're doing, I guess, in a way like, oh, okay, yeah, I am, I am all right. <laughs> I'm good at this. I'm professional, cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brilliant. And going, going back to the beer, so how, because you're, you're near, no, you're not near Truro, are you? You're near Falmouth area or? Um, so I'm about 10 minutes from Falmouth and about 20 minutes from the Beaver Project. Oh, okay, so it's so it's quite local to you then. I didn't realise it was that close. Yeah, really, really close. So it's just north of Truro and it's I'm about 10 minutes from Truro. Oh, brilliant. And, and are they, they're not, um, they can't run where they like, they're fenced in, aren't they? Is that right? Or, or have they got free roam? So they're still within their enclosure. Um, okay. They It's part of, I think, all of the enclosures are, they're like a standard five-year trial and they are in okay. I think in the third year now um and so they've got two years left of their official trial but I think that very much is dependent on the government's de decisions that they make with response to the Devon trial um yeah but um yeah so they're in an enclosure um I think it's a five hectare site but it's it's an incredible place to go and see and to have seen the transformation um, because I was filming on site before the release. Uh, and so okay. Three, uh, three and a half years now of, yeah, watching them turn it into their own. <laughs> I've still yet to see a beaver. It's one of those kind of bogey species. I've been looking, for, I've been up to Scotland before looking for them and, and places like that. And I've never, never yet to see. I've seen the trees where they've nibbled them away, but not, not seen a beaver. It's one of those things that it's on my wildlife bucket list for the UK. <laughs> I'll get there eventually. And you, you mentioned briefly about the seven projects. So we, we met through Unlock, Unlocking the, the Seven, didn't we? And we were trying to film Shad. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that project? Yeah, so this, oh, it's a really, really amazing project where there's basically a huge amount of investment going into reinstigating the historic migration route of this kind of, I think they're a part of the Herring family. They're called the Twain Shad and they used to be this really kind of highly revered fish and it's um it was said that kind of in the medieval time not medieval times in the times of like uh queen elizabeth um when kind of foreign princes would come over it would be the thing that they would offer them that it was like oh. that well known and that famous and but then as the kind of canalization happened and weirs were put in this basically um they are the worst swimmers I think of <laughs> in the river so basically if they if there's anything like an obstacle in their way they just then can't pass the weirs and so as these kind of transport weirs were put in it cut off their historic migration route and they they almost dwindled to extinction in our rivers and I think they thought that they totally disappeared but then I'm not sure how long ago it was now but they basically found there was a remnant population um somewhere near i think it was near tewksbury um yeah i think so then they realized that this fish was that yeah there was this remnant population and what they were going to try and do was basically reinstigate this historic migration route and open up the upper reaches 
um, for this fish, but in doing so, because they're basically the worst swimmers, if they can get to where they need to be, everything else can as well. So the kind of so it's basically just opening the River Severn and its reaches to kind of to revive it basically, because I think it's not in a very good state. The health of the river isn't good, and but it's just amazing that there's this huge investment going into this right now. Millions, um, isn't it? It's millions and millions they're putting into millions it. Millions and millions and the construction and, and you just kind of think that all of this is happening for this kind of this tiny little silvery fish. And it's I find it a really, really amazing story of hope and investment and the fact that there is this huge human effort going into yeah, going into kind of trying to, you know, restore the population of this fish and in doing so create a, a much healthier river system for kind of everything else that relies on it. So it's kind of, yeah, it's this kind of, that's the species that's the focus, but so much more will benefit from it. So few people have probably ever heard of a twait shad. They're like, what? You know, it's such a, an unknown fish. So it's great that it is getting all this, uh, all this attention. And the bit that caught my eye was, I think is it, Diglas, is it Diglas where they're doing a fish pass or something and they're going to yeah. put a window in or something like that so you can see the fish actually passing which I know it's quite common in Europe a lot of European rivers have it but in the UK I think there might be one in Pit Lockery and that's it so there are very few but what a way to engage the public you can imagine people taking their kids and watching the shad or salmon or whatever swim by I think it's, it's you know the whole thing it's not just that the whole thing is a fantastic project yeah um, well, that's a huge part of it, engaging the local community and it not being something that's kind of, you know, kind of construction company coming in and just saying, you know, we're going to be doing this here and, you know, kind of lump it or like it. It's very much a kind of um, a project where the community are really engaged and they do a lot of the fish counting on, on the, um, it's called a resistivity counter and you can see the fish swimming past and a lot of the local community come down and they're there tallying the fish as they see them kind of swimming past. But that's part of it is this viewing gallery is so that the local community can come down and really engage in it and see what's, you know, beneath the surface and when the shad are running in the spring it's going to be an amazing thing to see, you know, seeing how many of them are going to be swimming past. And yeah, I think that's a really integral part of the entire Unlocking the Seven project is this kind of community element and them taking pride in their local, local wildlife and environment. Yeah, it's quite, it gets quite addictive. I've done it before, sit there watching the shad and your head starts turning and you're like, was that four, was that five? And then you shut your eyes and you just see shad going by it's quite uh, <laughs> quite inducing well i'm going to end on this last question anyway which was lockdown has been difficult for many freelancers and there's also been a sort of upside to it a surge in creativity and you decided to bring lots of other filmmakers together for wild worlds it was wild worlds wasn't it yeah um an online nature series that kind of brought people together and with lots of interest people online so what made you want to make that what kind of what was the decision behind that I think the decision behind that was seeing lots of different freelancers posts on social media, kind of this sense of anxiety and lots of them kind of saying, you know, work has been cancelled and this has been cancelled and, but also like wanting a creative output. And I myself as well, the first week of lockdown had, I was meant to be starting filming on a couple of projects, like 
in the following weeks and all of that was just kind of there was a week where every single day I got a phone call and it was kind of yep this has been put on hold or this has been cancelled and I kind of started to feel a bit like oh my gosh like I I want to be creating things and there's you know so I you know living where we do we're surrounded by fields and I've got a lot of wildlife and I put camera traps up and we're seeing foxes and deer and then seeing these posts I was like you know what we can still share spring together because we'd also had a pretty horrific winter it was so wet and then suddenly we had this incredible spring with all of this amazing weather and it just seemed like everything had just kind of gone a bit mad in the natural world but then we were suddenly not allowed to share that together and so I think that was a part of it was just being like we can share this there is a way by using technology and you know lots of us are self-shooting filmmakers so we can you know film what's on on our doorsteps and but it was just an idea that I wasn't really sure how people would respond and some people I was like you know not everybody might have had their work cancelled and so I just kind of started getting in touch with a few people just to see what they thought and I was just overwhelmed by the response like everybody was just so up for it and so up for kind of having a purpose to go out and get their camera out and have a think about what they might want to focus on and there was just a really really lovely kind of atmosphere around the whole thing because nobody was being paid for it everybody was doing it for their pure love of wildlife and nature and wanting to share that with other people and so it just yeah it just felt like a really special thing to do and the music was created by somebody um someone called david john williamson who didn't charge a penny for it and you know everybody just yeah got stuck in and i think because there wasn't this kind of pressure on it everybody just delivered things and things just turned up in my inbox and it was just the most amazing few months of just every day just being sent through incredible footage by amazing wildlife filmmakers from around the UK so yeah it turned into a really really special project and I feel very very um appreciative for all of the people that put all the time in and honoured to have kind of yeah had so many people um produce such amazing amazing stuff yeah, because they turned out quite cinematic. I mean, they were, the quality of what people were making, all what everyone was making, was was absolutely fantastic. And these are on these are on YouTube, aren't they? And that's right. If anyone wants to watch these, they're uh, they're available for free for anyone. Just on is yeah. on your on your YouTube channel. So on my YouTube channel, and it's all available for anyone to watch totally free. Um, and also, there's a page on my website if anybody can't find it, and it's just Nina Constable forward slash Wild World and they're all there and there's seven seven episodes and a couple of extra bonus bonus bits there as well oh brilliant well look it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you nina um thank you so much for having <laughs> me i hope i've made sense didn't ramble too much <laughs> no i mean i'll cut most of it down it'll probably end up being about two minutes long so we won't really uh listen to most of it <laughs> <laughs> cut, um, cut, cut. Yeah, yeah no 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 it's all it was all fantastic and we've got your other half on the podcast in a couple of weeks, I think. I'm going to interview him next week and that'll be on shortly after. We're going to waffle about tuna, I think. He loves waffling about tuna. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> well, look, take care. You too. Lovely to speak to you. And um, yeah, speak soon. That was Nina Constable and I really recommend checking out those Wild World films. They're like a, a mini art house celebration of wildlife filmmaking. Some really nice little pieces on there. And best thing of all, they're all available free to watch on YouTube. Now that brings me to Nature Reserve of the Week. 
And this week I'm choosing Stanage Edge, which is in the Derbyshire Peak District. Now the name comes from Stone Edge, as it's a large rocky outcrop. Now it's well known for being littered with landscape photographers. Even if you go very, very early in the morning, in the summer, it's rare that you're going to be on your own. Not necessarily a problem, but there's always people up there. It lies a couple of miles north of Haversidge and is mostly a moorland habitat. Uh, there are lots of wildlife, which I'll come on to in a second, but it's it's a landscape photographer's haven. You know, you get some beautiful sunrises, you get those mist inversions, you know, they kind of look like waves, but it's the clouds. It is It is a phenomenal place to be. So as well as this stunning landscape, you get good numbers of red grouse, some of which can be pretty tame, and they're used to walkers, so you can get really close, get some great pictures of them. The best time to see some of the other species, and in particular ring ouzel, is late March to the end of July. Now a ring ouzel looks a little bit like a blackbird, but they're much rarer and tend to be more of a moorland, heathland, uh, upland species. So are they spectacular looking? I mean, I would argue they're just a slightly different blackbird, but I'm sure you know they, they, they're pretty enough. They're worth, they're worth a look. Now there are other birds, of course, around Stanage, things like snipe, curlew, reed bunting, windchat, wheatear and linnet. So there's plenty for the bird watcher to see. Although there aren't many trees, they're kind of in the thickets, in the gorse and things like that. It's not known for mountain here, but they are sighted occasionally. And in the little ditches and small rivers, you can find fairly good numbers of water voles, not to mention golden ring dragonflies, one of the most beautiful dragonflies that we have in Britain. Now the heather looks phenomenal in August. It's the best time to go and see it. And it also supports many reptiles which soak up the peatland heat, things like common lizards and adders. And if you're very, very lucky, you might even see an emperor moth. It's a species I'm yet to see, but they're one of our largest moths and they are absolutely exquisitely marked. Now there are a couple of car parks there, but no real facilities. On busy days, there might be an ice cream van or a coffee van. Uh, but you can't rely on that, so it's recommended you take plenty of water or a flask if it's in the colder months, uh, a bit of a picnic with you. As mentioned, Haversidge is only a couple of miles away, uh, with all the amenities you need, you know, toilets, and there, there are pubs close by as well for things like that. In terms of walking, it can be a bit tricky in places, so I would say you need to be relatively fit, and I don't think it would be suitable if you're in a wheelchair or, or you can't walk very well. But if you can get around there, it is a phenomenal place. And, and again, you don't have to pay, you just kind of rock up and, and walk around. So it's a great place to visit, that's Stanage Edge and the Derbyshire Peak District. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. As always, check out some of the highlights on the Wildlife Expose YouTube channel and also our Twitter account, at TitBearded. And I'm also keen to, to hear from you guys. Do you like the, the news at the beginning and the nature reserve of the week? Do you want me to keep doing that? Would you rather the podcast literally just be pure interviews or do you want me to add something else to it do you want me to take something out of it uh, I'm always open to to suggestions so let me know what you're thinking because I was thinking about knocking the news and the nature reserve on the head and just concentrate on the interview but I quite like doing the different things so so let me know what you guys think anyway this has been the bearded tits podcast I've been Jack Perks and thanks for tuning in and I will catch you next time cheers